In Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting of the Last Supper, Jesus' hands are empty. Now, there's an interesting, inspiring story that goes along with that. You see, before that da Vinci released his famous painting to the world, he showed it to a very close friend. And his friend's feedback was, you know, he was tremendously excited. He says, that cup that's in Jesus' hand is just phenomenal. And da Vinci, at that point, went immediately discouraged, and he painted out the cup that was initially in Jesus' hand in the Last Supper. He wanted the attention to be solely focused on Christ. And so you can imagine his, you know, he was dis, you know, disheartened a little bit when his friend said, notice that cup. He's take it out of there. He wants the attention to be on Jesus. Having removed the cup, he had to do something with the hand. The left hand was already outstretched just above the table, lifting as if to bless and command. Now the right hand, also empty, was also outstretched invitingly. The Colossians were distracted. False teachers were coming into the church and they were teaching that Christ is not enough. That they needed other knowledge, they needed other wisdom, that they needed rituals, that they needed something other than simple faith in Jesus Christ to live godly lives, to be right with God. And so they were becoming distracted. Paul's letter to them is intended to remove the distractions by pointing them to the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is supreme, we can be certain that in him we have all we need. And that's really the theme of the book of Colossians is because Jesus is supreme, if you've come to Jesus Christ, if you're in him, you have all that you truly need. And the Colossians needed a reminder to not be distracted and this book serves as a reminder to us today in 2022, 2023, the same thing, that we need not get distracted and keep our hearts focused on the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. So what he's going to do in this passage is Paul's going to essentially tell us some things about Jesus Christ. He's saying, don't get distracted, focused on how Christ is supreme. And there are three ways in this passage that we see that Christ is supreme. We see Christ being supreme in his relationship to the Father, number one. We see Christ being supreme in his relationship to creation. And we see Christ being supreme in his relationship to the church. Those three things, his relationship to the Father, to creation, and his relationship to the church. Starts off right away in the section for the relationship to the Father. Colossians 1.15, verse 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, before we go further, let's ask the Lord to help us through this passage, okay? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that you gave it, that you inspired it through the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we approach it today just as it is the very words of God. Lord, we sit ourselves below your authority and we approach your word as it is the very words of God to us here today. And we ask in Jesus' name that you bless it and teach us. Amen. 
Amen. He is the image of the invisible God. Now, this word image is an interesting word. This is talking about Jesus. It says he's the image of the invisible God. The word in the Greek is where we get our English word icon, right? Now, an icon, what this means is it's the very substance or exact copy or likeness of something. So when Paul is telling the Colossians, you don't need any distractions, you need to focus on Jesus Christ. Well, why, Paul? Because he is the icon of God. He is the exact representation of God. He is the exact likeness of God. Paul, in strong words, is saying that Jesus Christ is God. Now, where it says of the invisible God, Jesus Christ is the exact likeness of the invisible God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, this is a familiar verse. I'm going to read a few that talk about this. It says, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Remember that in the great chapter 2 of the kenosis section is what theologians call that, about how Christ became a man uh, in uh, Philippians. Paul says there that he was being in the form of God. It's the same idea. John chapter 1, verse 14, very familiar verse. You probably maybe have this memorized. It says, and the talking about Jesus, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, the word, he became flesh. He is God that became flesh. John 14 verse nine, Jesus said to him, here's a familiar one, talking to uh, Philip. He says, how long have I been with you uh, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Philip, show us the Father? Jesus, in his own words, he says, you know, remember Philip is like, just show us the Father. Jesus says, if, how long have I have to hang out with you before you realize I'm God? Haven't you seen the things I've been doing, hearing the words? He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? Now, I just want to pause for a second and say, maybe you are thinking, this is a great Bible study, but I'm dealing with like, issues with kids, with health, with family, with stuff in my life. I've got all kinds of problems going on. Here we are talking about these lofty theological concepts, and I need something practical. Well, let me tell you this. There is nothing more practical to your life than Jesus being God. There's nothing more practical because that fact changes how you live your life, how you parent your kids, how you work at your job, how you deal with health issues, how you deal with tragedies, all of these different things. Jesus Christ being God and being the Lord of your life, it affects all these different areas of your life. So there's hardly anything more practical that you could do than to get to know God himself. And I think that's what Paul's telling them. You find yourself being distracted. Let's get your eyes on the most important thing. Jesus here described by Paul is God in every way. Now, Jesus said the very same thing. John chapter 10, verse 30 through 33. Listen to what he said. He said, I and my father are one. Now, Muslims will say that Jesus never anywhere in the Bible, he declared never to be God. Okay. But in John chapter 10, verse 30, he says, I and the father are one. Now, and all these other verses as well. But Jesus himself said that he is one with the Father and this idea that he's the icon of God. He's the, he's the very substance of God. You know how we know that Jesus was claiming divinity? Because the very next <coughs> section in John chapter 10, verse 30 through 33, after Jesus said, I and my Father are one, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. 
See, because Jesus was claiming to be God, that's why people wanted to stone him. And so, in Jesus' own words, I and the Father are one. It reminds me of the little boy that was walking one day, hand in hand with his mother. And as he looked up into the fluffy cloud-filled sky, he said, Mommy, is God really up there? And she said, of course he is. He said, well, why doesn't he just show himself to us? Why doesn't he... Why doesn't he just show himself? What he was yet to understand is that God has shown himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. If a person wants to know God, what God is like, all they need to do is to open up the Bible and to learn about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the icon. He is the invisible. He's the image of the invisible God. Christ is supreme in his relationship to the Father. They are one. Jesus is deity. Jesus is one with the Father. He's the exact representation. Number two, Jesus is supreme in his relationship to creation. It says in verse 15, going on for uh, the second part of verse 15, that he is the firstborn over all creation. The NLT has it like this. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Very important thing to, to wrap your mind around here, that Jesus was before anything was created. This word firstborn, it's kind of a cool word in the Greek, and you could try it if you want. It's a prototokos. Anybody want to try it? Prototokos. Yeah, it's fun, right? Prototokos. You kind of get the word prototype out of there. Proto. What this word means that's translated firstborn is it has to do with priority and rank in this context. It can be used to describe chronology. Like out of my five kids, he was born the first. It can be used like that, but it is in this context used to describe his priority and his rank, his sovereignty over everything. He is first in rank. Now, I point that out because this term is frequently used by the cultists to say Jesus is not God. See, he has been born. You follow that? Like, how could he be eternal if he was born? See, Jesus is not God. They say firstborn, and they use this word. But it's a misunderstanding of the Greek term and the Greek and the biblical concept of the firstborn. You see this concept of the firstborn referring to rank all through the Bible and not necessarily chronology. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, listen to what God says. He says, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Was Israel the first nation chrono chronologically to ever walk the planet? No. But God is saying there that they are my firstborn son. He's using this concept to talk about priority and rank. Another example, Psalm 89, verse 27. If you want to witness to Jehovah's Witnesses, I'd be writing these verses down. Psalm 89, verse 27 says, Also I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. He's talking about David there. I will make David my firstborn, is what God is saying. 
right? It also has implications and prophetic meaning for the Messiah. But in the strict context there, he's talking about David. Was David God's firstborn? No, chronologically. Was David even firstborn in his family? Right. It's the concept of firstborn being used as rank, and that's how it's being used in Colossians here. Now, you might say, well, how can you tell? Well, the whole context of the whole letter is Paul, he's combating the heresy that says that Christ is a created being. So the whole context of the letter is about Christ's supremacy in rank and being eternal, not being a created being. Another reason we know this is true is the very next verse, and this is commonly what happens when false teachers misinterpret something and teach it. They just don't read far enough. The very next verse says that by him, all things were created. Now, if you could say that of someone that by them, all things were created, that implies that that creator could not be created. This is simple logic. If someone has created all things, they themselves cannot be created. A lot of people stumble with this. Well, who made God? That's a favorite of a kid to keep you up at night. You're trying to raise your kids in the Lord. Uh, They come to you, they're about seven, and they say, uh, who made God? Well, you have to explain to them at this point, no, 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 honey. The Bible teaches that he is the uncaused first cause. As the creator of all, he has to be uncreated. He's eternal. The Bible teaches he's eternal. Who created God? Nobody created God. God is eternal. That's why he called himself partially I, what? What does he say his name was to Moses? I am. He doesn't say I was, I will be, I'm going to be around 2.30. I am. Interestingly enough, Jesus said before Abraham was, what do you say? I am. am. Now, he existed before anything was created. He's eternal. He's a supreme. He's supreme over all creation. Now, I want to make a little application here while we're here. Since God is eternal, there is no knowledge that has come at any time after him that could possibly be more important than him. See how that works? Like the Gnostics, let's, let's put, let's put the, the Colossian church into 2023. This is like a church, be, you know, somebody comes in and says, your faith in Jesus Christ isn't enough. You need to read um, this book by uh, this self-help author. You should read this. Or you should read this new age book about how these people do these certain practices that they're getting, they're able to get like tuned into the spiritual realm. And uh, you need this. Well, Christ is great, but you need all this other knowledge. Just think through this for a second. If he's eternal, if he's before all things, that means that no knowledge has ever come after him that could possibly be more important than him. In Christ, you have all that you need. Nothing has ever come along that has made Christ irrelevant or insufficient. That brings serious peace to my heart because I got to tell you, I'm a kind of guy that likes to read. I like to read all kinds of different stuff. And I'll go through these seasons where I start to read, you know, worldly stuff in a sense, self-help, business stuff, positive thinking, different things like that. You know, um, Atomic Habits was one of them that I read recently, New York Times bestseller, you know. And all of these things, the one thing that, that none of them have in common, you know, for the most part that I read is they just, they don't know about the sufficiency of Christ. And so you come away from their book and, and they, the way they present it is, you need this book to do this thing. And, and you're like, you know, you start to get this 
feeling if you're not careful of like, wow, there's so much knowledge in this world. I feel so stupid. I mean, man, how can I learn all this stuff that I need to have? I mean, I'm picking up little bits and pieces from each of these books. And so it's such a welcome reminder when the Holy Spirit bears witness, like, wait, Christ is eternal. There could be nothing else that you truly need. And I'm not saying there isn't something helpful in these books. I'm not saying that. I mean, maybe you love Atomic Habits. Maybe you've got the monogrammed calendar and the pen and all the other things that he sold you in his click funnel too, but <laughs> you don't need those things. Not to be sufficient in Christ's eyes, not to be whole in God's eyes. You can please God wonderfully here today. You can fulfill your purpose in Christ with Christ alone. Goes on in verse 16, says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. Jesus' relationship to the creation, he is the creator. Notice the preposition by him. See that? The creation was created by him. Now there's a couple other prepositions we'll point out as we go through. Within him is the power to create. John 1.3 says, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. There's no thing that is necessary outside of him. He created all things. There's no knowledge outside of him that is necessary. He created all truth. This should greatly affect our understanding of all things. From personal possessions to the stars, the dollar in your pocket, the galaxy that Hubble took pictures of, the billions of galaxies, all of it belongs to him. He created everything. He created your kids, your job, your car, your health, your shoes. Goes on to say, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. He's all things in heaven and earth, the things you can see and the things you can't see. The Bible is clear that there is a realm uh, described as, uh, you know, the unseen realm where there are principalities, powers, and rulers. Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, we don't battle against flesh and blood. The real spiritual battle is in the spiritual realm. Paul talks about this. The Bible is clear about it, that there is a spiritual realm. And some people are really overly consumed with it. Um, why I don't get overly consumed with it is because the Bible only gives us so much knowledge about it. And I figure if the Bible only says this much about it, then I don't need more than what the Bible says about it. And then for two, I know God created all of it. You know, so there are people that are freaked out about demons and fallen angels and spirits and evil stuff like that. I'm not worried about a bit of it. Why? Because God created all of it. Christ created all of it. doesn't matter. It's all, it all bows to him, right? So I don't worry about any of that stuff. There's nothing in the unseen realm that is necessary or that can come between you and Christ. He made it all. Nothing in the unseen realm. In other words, if you want to find out what's going on with your life, you really don't need to go to get an angel reading, right? Because why would I need to turn my attention to a created being when I can have my heart fixed on the creator? People fall short all the time. The Bible says that people become like ignorant because they start worshiping the creation rather than the creator. That's like people that go to a medium or to a seance or some of these different things. They think that there's knowledge that they need out there. You don't need any of this stuff. That stuff, in fact, it goes beyond not even needing it. The Bible says that it's all witchcraft. It's all a cult. You're dabbling with Satan if you're reading horoscopes. If you're, I know somebody could be listening to this. Oh, you're off. You're a rocker, man. Read the Bible, <laughs> right? 
The Bible says that Jesus created all of it, and he says, you don't need anything to do with any of it. So I have confidence in Christ. I have confidence that in him, all that I, I have all I need. All things were created through him and for him. It goes on. Notice those prepositions there, through him and for him. He's the agent. The through him is like he's the architect. He's the brains behind all of it. By him, he's got the power. Through him, he's the architect. And for him, the goal of creation is Christ. What's the purpose of life? What's the meaning of life, right? It's all for him. That's what it says there. Listen, do you ever struggle with feelings of uh, like worthlessness? You ever get like that? You ever get like, what is life all about? This is just futile. I can't believe this. I'm like, what was his name? Sisyphus? Is that the guy that was rolling the ball up the hill nonstop and he never got to the top of it? That's what life's about. It's just like, you know, junk just gets piled on me and I just keep shoveling it off and life's just a grind and blah, blah, blah. And, and do you ever feel like that? I spent like my whole 20s feeling like that. And so it was such a relief to me to know that the Bible definitively answers the question of what life is all about. The life that you live, life itself, the whole creation, every single thing is for him. Why was I made? I feel useless. Well, you're not useless. You were made for him. That's what it says right there. If you've ever struggled with doubts, insecurity, self-worth issues, all that stuff like that, I want you to highlight those words in your Bible and think about them, that you were made for him. Application. Help people understand that they were created for him, especially a generation that's been so um, confused by the atheists, by the school system teaching. You know what the school system teaches your kids? You know, they probably taught some of you. you. You know that they say, you know, some fish, you know, kind of some cells sort of mutated, you know, I got evolution. You're just really nothing. Everything came from just the blob of, you know, stuff in the universe. And step by step, here you are today. And what is life really about? Well, nothing really. You're just kind of evolved blob, you know, and like, what's the purpose of life? Well, Dawkins, uh, he said, Richard uh, Dawkins, he said that the purpose of life is to propagate DNA. <laughs> You know, another uh, widely popular uh, textbook uh, curriculum influencer says that there is no purpose to, to life, that we all have this like innate desire to try to find out what meaning is. The Bible says God put eternity to our hearts in the book of Ecclesiastes. But he says we keep looking for a purpose, but there is none, right? Why do you think there's a generation of people that can't cope without meds? have to have fidget spinners to try to find, you know, I mean, why, why do you think that there are people that are so messed up inside? It's because people tell them they're worth nothing. If you've ever been told that, or if you've ever, if you kids, you young people, you've ever been told that, it's absolutely not true. Read the Bible. It says that you were created for him, for him. He's pleased that you're alive today. He's pleased that you're breathing his air. He's pleased that you're here. He's pleased that you have been made. It's just amazing that the creator of all things stepped down from glory to take the form of a man that would die as a common criminal to save me, to save you. Verse 17, he was before all things. The universe had a beginning. Christ was already existing before those things. How many years ago was that? Was that before my sister was born? Yeah. 
Was that before Iowa became a state? Yeah. Was that before the United States? Yeah. Was it before the earth was created? Yeah. Was it before the universe? Keep going back. Keep going back. Christ is there. He's been always there. He's eternal. He's before all things. Here's something to think about with that. Since Christ is before all things, and the Bible says that before anything was ever created, he had works for us to fulfill, and he had already planned that he was going to save us. That means that before I ever failed in sin, before I ever made any mistakes in my life, before I ever blew it, before I ever did anything, God set his heart on me, and he planned to save me. And here I am fulfilling his purpose and calling for me. And he was there, and he saw every single bad thing I've ever done and everything I will do, and he still loved me before all things. Before and after every other thing, eternally, you will be the object of Christ's love. Verse six or 17, I'm sorry, it says, in him all things consist. This is just crazy, right? Scientists talk about the stuff of the universe. They talk about this like they don't understand why the, you know, the protons and neutrons and stuff, they don't understand why they collide, but they've spent multi-multi-billions of dollars trying to make them collide, right? The super collider. And they've understood that atomic explosions are essentially, I'm no scientist here, but when the atomic force, you know, uh, allows the, the cell to implode, you have atomic explosion. And it's interesting that scientists are baffled that they're like, why does this all hold together? Why does everything not just hold together? Um, if something was to release its grip on it, everything would just burn up. Yeah, it talks about that in Peter. Because there will become a day when Christ, the sustainer of all things, loses his grip. And the heavens, everything will melt away is what the Bible says. Sorry if you're trying to save the planet. Good thing to do, though, but keep it in perspective, right? Scientists marvel at the fine-tuning of the universe. They say if the earth was just like just a little bit further from the sun, no life could exist. If it was just a little bit closer, everything would burn up. They marvel at the fine-tuning of the universe. I went outside last night to let my dog go out. He always wants to go out at the weirdest times. Just when I want to do something. And I go out and I let him out and I'm looking up at the stars and I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking these stars, each one of these things, they just, they're right where they are on purpose. And Christ is like holding these things right where they are. These things are so massive, you can't even imagine it. The strength of Christ, he's not breaking a sweat even doing it. He's just, just, he has all power and that power sustains and holds together everything that he's created. And you look at it and you're like, this is a masterpiece. And then you start to think thoughts like, how smart must Christ be to create all of this stuff the way that it works together. You think about gravity. Why is gravity holding me on this planet at the perfect amount of pressure any more than I'd be crushed, any less I'd float away? Why is this stuff happening? He's so genius. He holds all things together. I'm looking up at the stars through the trees and then the trees catch my attention. And I'm like, the way that they take in, you know, the, the air and they recycle the things and their roots go down into the ground and all the minerals that are in the ground from all the things that have died and become nutrients and... And I'm thinking, man, this Christ, this Jesus Christ that I follow, uh, he's just, this is mind-blowing. This is mind-blowing. The air is so crisp. I can see everything so clearly. Why on some nights is it not crisp? There are clouds sometimes. Other times there's not. I mean, it's just, you know, he's so, I don't even know what to say. You're just in awe of him. And then I think, man, how foolish I am to think that if he could hold all this together, that he can't hold me together. My times are in his hand, a hand so safe and strong, a hand which holds the sea and guides the stars along. 
Christ's relationship to the Father, exact representation of God, Jesus is God. Relationship to creation, it's by him, through him, for him. Held together by him. And now, number three, Jesus is supreme in his relationship to the church. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in him all things may have the preeminence. When we have our servants meetings, we begin more often than not praying, recognizing the fact that Jesus is the head of the church. So it says right there, he is the head of the body, the church. Now, this is what's referred to in this context as the universal church. We are a local church, which the Bible talks about local churches, talks about how that we're to not neglect meeting together, how we're to love and serve one another and to be a local church. But the Bible also talks about the universal church. So our local expression, this group right here that God has put together is a part of a bigger body of Christ, which is the universal church. And that's what he's saying here, that Jesus is the head of every single Christian on the planet. He is the head of the church right? He's the creator. He's the sustainer. He's the one that gives knowledge. He's the one that his, his Bible tells us how we conduct service. Every single thing we look to him because he's the head of the church. And I think it's also pretty interesting that in 2023, we use the language, we say, well, I'm going to go to church. Well, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to get technical, you don't go to church you are the church. You are the body of Christ. You are a part of the very vehicle that God has decided to express himself through in this community. When you're sitting at home, if you're deliberating, I wonder if I should go to church, stop that and say, wait a minute, I am the church. Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing as the church? It's, he says it's like a body. And Paul also describes it like this. Can you imagine? We're, we're all different limbs of Christ's body. This is staggering that the God of the universe, the God of all creation, has decided to express himself to this world through you. You are a walking billboard for Jesus. You are the hands and feet of God Almighty. That's a privileged position, isn't it? That's staggering that God has chosen to show himself through me, <laughs> through you, through all of us. With the church as a body, the illustration Paul says is everybody the hand, is everybody the eye? No, we're all, we all have different parts. If you're sitting and deliberating whether to come to this building to worship as being the church, if you're, if you're wavering on that, think about what would happen if your foot decided not to come with the rest of the body. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about that on the Sundays that you have to miss on accident? Do you ever think that church body that God has called me to be part of is missing something that God is trying to do through me in that body? Do you ever think about that? If you decide, oh, I'm too tired to go. Well, we are missing something that God is trying to do through you here. And all that comes back to an understanding of what the church is. The church is his body on earth and he is the head of it. This is a very personal question for you. With, this, with Jesus being the head of the church and you being the church and you being an individual of it, is Jesus the head of your life? Begs the question, doesn't it? 
This is fascinating that Jesus expresses his life on earth through you and through me. It goes on in verse 18, says, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. There's that term firstborn again, and they will say, see, Jesus is born. What this means in this context is the risen Christ from the tomb. He is the first one to resurrect in a body. Now, there were people in the scriptures that were resuscitated. They will die again right? Lazarus raised from the dead. He'll go die again. Jesus is the first to come out of the grave in a resurrected body fit for heaven. And in that sense, he's a prototype for what will happen with all of us. That's why he's the firstborn. He's the one that set this whole new prototype for his new being, which is the church. He's the head of the church and he's the one to get uh, resurrected. And, And I don't know if you know this, you should, if you were here through Thessalonians, you will be resurrected into a new body. Uh, Like, you know, Jesus had a body that was fit for heaven. We don't know much about it. He was able to go through, you know, walk through different places. He didn't go through doors, different stuff like that. I'm assuming I'll have a full head of hair. That's what Chuck Smith always used to say. He's like, you you know, in heaven, you won't recognize me. You'll say, man, who is that guy with that luscious, you know, it'll be Neil. Me and Neil will be over there like, yeah. (laughs) That in all things, he may have the preeminence, verse 18. Now, this is the whole point of it. The Gnostics in the Colossian church were saying Christ is just an emanation from God. He's like one of these ranks of principalities, powers, and rulers. He's just one of those. He's important. Paul is saying, no, that's nonsense. He's preeminent in all things. He's the creator. He's eternal. All things were created through him, by him, for him. He is preeminent. He's way above any of this other stuff. He destroys the notion that Christ is a created being. Same thing that the JWs carry around. Say that, you know, he's, uh, you know, Michael the archangel, that he's a created being. Paul destroys that. If you get a JW at your door and you want to help them to come to know Christ, take them to Colossians and explain prototokos and what firstborn means. Give them the scripture references you found here. If you need them again, check on our website and you can listen to this sermon again. Where it says that Christ is preeminent, that he is in first place over all creation. That's how the NLT has it, which is very accurate. He's in first place over all creation. It begs the question. Is he first place in your life? I'm not trying to condemn you. I need to be asked this very same question frequently. Adam, is he first place in your life? been taking a web development class. And um, the last module I was doing was uh, dealing with design and heard this anecdote in there talking about photography. Webs- what makes a good website is good photography, essentially good pictures, good illustrations. And so they would teach about it. And the story of this gal, Pam. And Pam was taking a class for photography and her first assignment she chose that she was going to use her seven-year-old daughter as the subject. And so they go out to the Arboretum and it's just a beautiful day and they find a, she finds a place that she thinks would look good and Pam sets her daughter down and she starts adjusting the ISO and the aperture and all the different stuff and, and um, the corner of her eye just catches this beautiful apple tree, just so, so beautiful. And she's taken aback by it, the beauty of this. And so she gives this apple tree just a really prominent place in her photo. She 
uploads her assignment and waits to hear from the instructor, and the instructor gives her a B. And she says, well, what's going on? And the instructor said, well, there are, you gave the tree too prominent of a place. It's distracting from the main point. So what you need to do is you need to pick one point or the other, and then you need to get rid of, even if you've got to crop out everything else. And the application certainly transfers over to our Christian life. Some of us are like Pam with two subjects in our photo. And it would probably be the most helpful thing for us to either do whatever it takes, maybe, you know, refocus your life, crop out whatever has to get out of there. No distractions. We need to choose one subject and leave the other out. Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. In the case of the Colossians, you cannot serve Jesus and man's intellect. You cannot serve Jesus and religion. You cannot serve Jesus Christ and insist on religious works being required for salvation. You can't serve those two things. You cannot serve Jesus and anything else. This is, a bit, this is where the struggle comes from in our lives is because our heart is in this constant wrestling match to try to be king of our lives. But Jesus comes in your life and he says, look, I'm meant to be the king of your life. And if you don't allow me to be the king in your life, things are going to be miserable. If you've been miserable with too many things in your photo, praise God, because he's not allowing you to settle for anything less than letting him go into his rightful place in your life. You need to have no distractions. Whatever distracts us from Jesus has to go. As the preeminent one, he must be the single focus of our lives. There are many implications and applications that we could draw from this text. We could spend hours, days talking about this text with all the implications and ways you could apply this. Maybe the most important thing to me is that if you have come to Jesus Christ, you have come to God. And if you have come to God, you have all you need.